Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello and welcome to The Tonight Show. The government pushes ahead with contentious plans to overhaul the planning system despite criticism of how quickly the legislation was brought to Cabinet. The planning bill was approved by government yesterday, by the three parties in government yesterday, uh, and the legislation was approved. No significant reduction in energy costs in the next year or two, while a combination of high demand and low wind right now gives the power grid its first winter test. And later, disgraced crypto king Sam Bankman-Fried arrested and charged while on the run in the Bahamas. As always, you can join the conversation online with your comments. And your questions on the hashtag tonight, VMTV. And a reminder about our nightly live interactive poll, which will allow you to tell us what you think about the big issues of the day. Tonight, we're asking, should it be made harder to object to planning applications? You can vote online on virginmediatelevision.ie forward slash vote, or you can follow the QR code on screen and we'll bring you those poll results later on in the programme. Now, Housing Minister Darrow O'Brien has stated that a proposed overhaul of the planning system will create a modern, efficient planning system with coherence between policies, plans and decisions. The plans were approved by Cabinet yesterday, but the move has caused some contention with many, not least the Green Party. Well, for more on this now, I'm joined by Business Post journalist Killian Woods, Sinn Féin Senator Lynn Boylan, Fianna Fáil Senator Mary Fitzpatrick, Environmental Law Officer at the Irish Environmental Network, Attracta Evren, Chartered Town Planner and Urban Designer, Tom Phillips, and via Skype tonight by architect and broadcaster, Roisin Murphy. A full panel, and you're all very welcome along to the programme tonight. Um, to come to you first, Killian, if I may, this is a massive document, isn't it? It's, it's nearly 700 pages long. Um, so what's the agenda behind this? And maybe tell us about the more contentious aspects of it. Yeah, and I think this, it's particularly confusing because we have a number of different kind of planning amendments, bills, talk about tackling judicial reviews and the planning system all coming at once. And kind of one, getting a lot of media coverage, which is what's going to come in the new year, but just judicial reviews. This is kind of the government saying what they're going to do for a long time, which is tackle and curtail the people's ability to take legal challenges against housing developments and wind farms and infrastructure. And then we have to this week and today, particularly the, the rush through changes uh, to Onboard Planal in light of the scandals there at that board where you know, we've had seen res resignations early in the year. So it's kind of, it's hard to set the scene from where to start because it is, it is a, this is a mammoth piece of legislation, a mammoth piece of like really has consolidating the planning bill and putting kind of a bit of like boundaries on what the government has been saying for a while. Mm -hmm. But again, you see tensions today in the government and this has been, and today and Green Party ministers out and saying that there may be, they have issues with it. This has been, you know, 
earmarked for so, so long, even before the Housing for All document, we knew they were going to tackle this. And it's pr pretty much around housing, although it's infrastructure projects as well. There is still criticism, though, that it's a bill that's being rushed through. It was at that um, middle of pre-legislative scrutiny by the Housing Committee when it was sort of put before Cabinet for approval, wasn't it? Yeah, and, and th that's the thing. Where they and we were criticising that they weren't doing this sharply as well. If it wasn't been brought forward in an expedient way, we'd be criticising as well. But there has been an, there has been a lot of talk about this up until now. So the, the, the government can say easily that, look, this has been long mooted. I don't know what, what the problems mm. are coming up now. We've kind of, through different leaks, through different media reports, we've known what's coming. But at the same time, we have different, different environmental NGOs, different opposition par parties and the politicians saying that really there's not been enough oversight into how we've gotten to this point because really it is, there's some, there are some huge changes to how we plan housing, infrastructure, everything here and how we possibly have a right to object, as citizens have a right to object to what is going on beside them. Yeah, that, that's one of the big points, I think, the contentious points that's been brought up is this right to object and a resident's right to say and to, 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 to protest against what may be built in their area. Mary, do you have concerns or, I mean, what is the rush on this? is what I'm asking around this. It's 700 pages as long as there a need. Is there a need to rush this through and, and to put it through at this point without that scrutiny? And then on the specific point as well of the right to protest and how some feel that that's being taken away. Yeah, look, public participation in our planning process is really important. And in, in, in one sense, you know, Killian explained it well, there's two issues going on. One is short-term temporary measures that will address issues with the operations of onboard Planola for the next 12 months. But the bigger piece of work, the 700 page uh, bill, is, is only really at the start of the legislative process. So it was agreed, the heads of that bill were agreed at Cabinet, but the next stage in January is for that legislation to come to the Joint Rocktus Committee, where all parties are represented. So it'll where be we'll talked have, out, is what you're saying? Well, there'll be pre-legislative scrutiny, Claire. This is a really important part of our parliamentary mm. process and, and our legislative process, and then it will be debated in both the Dáil and the Shannon. So there will be no rushing through of what will be an enormous piece of work, because it will deal with everything from public participation, but from the county area plans, the city plans, local area plans. It'll also deal with a, a robust establishment of an independent uh, planning process so that there will be consistency and certainty and cost okay. controls as well. And it will establish as well, which has long been promised, a dedicated court for planning and environmental matters. These are really important okay. developments because we must have confidence right. in our planning process. Okay, um, Lynn, on this, like some would say, yes, it, it, it is big, it is bulky, but that's because there's, there is a lot of reform that's required. Would you agree that this, this needs to happen and it, it needs to happen you know, efficiently? Oh, no, absolutely. I think there's no disagreement that the planning process has to be reformed. It's been years since, since that's happened and, and the, the legislation now is unwieldy. Um, that's, that's not up for, for debate. Uh, it is interesting to hear about, you know, Senator Fitzpatrick talking about the importance of pre-legislative scrutiny when that was bypassed last week in the Shannon for the changes to onboard Planola. The committee had not completed its pre-legislative scrutiny when that was brought to the Shannon. So if that's the, the, I suppose, the way they're looking at addressing legislation, it doesn't bode well for this 700-page document can we get the guarantees that it will be given the proper pre-legislative scrutiny and that members of the opposition, members of environmental NGOs and everybody else will be engaged with, will be listened to mm -hmm. and they're, they're, you know, they're, what they're offering will be taken on board. Okay, because that hasn't been the, yeah. the approach by the minister to date. 
And specifically on this issue around the judicial review that has come into the headlines, this is the fact that residents' associations will no longer be able to object as a, as a residents' association, as a specific grouping, to a given project. What does Sinn Féin think on that? What we want to see is a planning system that's fit for purpose. So that is about statutory timeframes for decision making and you have to resource. If you want planning efficiency, you have to resource the planning body. And what's interesting is what we've heard from the cabinet position was that Minister McGrath has said there's no extra revenue in terms of these changes. So unless you put in place the resources to make something more efficient, enough it's not planners going to, to enough make planners these decisions. to make the decisions so that they can. So you have statutory timeframes, but you also resources so that they can reach the so statutory timeframes. So just specifically, frames. though, Lynn, on that point about residence associations and the, the idea being now, if you want to object, you have to do so as an individual. You can't do so as a residence association. I, I, Would there be concerns about that? Well, as I said, we haven't seen the document. It's 600 pages long. But if, if that is the approach being taken, I think there are very serious concerns around access to justice and access to justice and access to the planning process is fundamental to the democratic process. Okay. So, but if we, we had a, if, 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 if we had a better planning process, you wouldn't need okay. to resort to judicial reviews. You would actually have public engagement okay. and public participation at the planning stages. Tom, uh, to bring you in on this, this is your job in the area of planning. Uh, is it the fix that you've been looking for? Well, it, it's going some of the way towards it. I'd like to clarify that people are still entitled, <coughs> and so are residents associations, are still entitled to object to the local authority and they're entitled to object to a board panola. That hasn't changed in what I've read. As an individual? Uh, no, as, as, no, as, as a residence association. Or a consortium group. can object to a local authority or in the five-week period, or they can appeal to a board panola after the decision's made. So but what's changed? What's changed is at the judicial review stage, which is in the court system, we are arguing over legal matters. It's not about planning matters. So people have got, have got a lot of focuses on judicial review to do with, that's to do with legal matters in the court, it's not to do with the planning. So very few schemes are assessed on whether it's good from a planning point of view, it's on legal matters of whether uh, directives were followed or other documents were done. So people are still entitled either collectively or singularly to make objections. But I wonder why they're oh. changing that. Because it, was, it came about because of strategic housing development. That, that was a form of development whereby when for houses, schemes of over 100 houses and 100 apartments that you made the application direct on board Panola. So in order to bring in what was deemed to be a, a deficit in people's right to object, they, they reminded people on site notices that you could judicially review, review this the decision. Mm. But that's now gone. So, the, so these applications are now made back to the local authority. So the thing that people are objecting to to bring in judicial review is now gone. So they don't have the same need that they had in the past to bring uh, schemes to court. So it doesn't make a better planning system. It just means more work for lawyers and people in courts. Uh, Attractor, what would be your take on that? Because you would be among people who would have concerns about these potential changes. Absolutely. And like everybody on the panel tonight, I agree that, you know, the, the Planning Act does need to be reviewed and reformed and that there is room for improvement there. Um, but the fundamental issue is that there's a really false narrative going around here. I find myself in agreement, strangely enough, with Tom for once in relation to the problems that arose from strategic housing development legislation, which was rushed through, I might add, um, and, and led to a whole pile of issues and flawed decisions, which led to an increase in challenges about the legality of those decisions. We all know this for a fact. That's what created the spike. And as a result, it is entirely inappropriate that we actually now are moving to curtail judicial review at a time where we have seen an exponential increase in the amount of decisions of board Planola which were found to be unlawful. And there is an issue of confidence there. And yet today, what extraordinarily, the government moved to radically 
changed the appointments process in onboard Planola, totally compromised its independence, removed the safeguards within, within the existing planning legislation around political control, bring us back to a situation we were in the 70s when ministers and government had extraordinary powers over onboard Planola. And it will never be more important than it will be in the new year under this new regime to but ensure this about, that just, this just new public body can be held yeah, to account. So this, is, this is about the yeah. overhaul of onboard Planola yeah. and it has been described actually, um, Mary, by as a power grab mm -hmm. by the Minister for mm -hmm. Housing to do this, to kind of make a decision about who should be on that board um, about that appointments process. Mm -hmm. yeah, look, is every, that valid criticism no, of what's happening? Because no. that, is the, that is one of the areas that has been kind of rushed through a cabinet to make these changes in order to get to, to, to change up on board Planola, including the change of its name and how it functions. Okay, so on board Planola was completely discredited. The allegations that were made, the Minister acted swiftly, consulted with the Attorney General and referred the allegations to the uh, DPP, to the Garda Commissioner and to the Standards and Public Office. So the Minister has acted very decisively but and on very the swiftly. appointment protest well, I, and that absolutely. criticism. But I think to be fair, to accuse the Minister it, of a power not. grab when he has acted in such a way that actually aims to hold people to account, right? So I think that's one issue. The second By making issue is, appointments to... No, no, let's, let's be clear board, about what's being proposed. It is being proposed that we need to have a chairperson so that we can appoint, we can have Ambor Planola uh, inspectors appointed. Ambor Planola is not functioning. Planning permissions are not being progressed. They're certainly not being progressed in a timely manner. So we do need a short-term fix. We need a much better fix, a more fundamental review, and that is what will be brought forward next year. But just can I come back to the judicial review point? So does because it scrap the independence of Ambor Planola? No, it doesn't. It doesn't. It, 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 it doesn't. It's absolutely absolutely going back. Absolutely does yeah. of Fianna Fáil when this is what they did. Yeah. They stuffed the planning board okay. with their own people. Uh, yeah. You know, we have serious reservations about the appointment process and it is a power grab by the minister. No matter what's said, it is a power grab. And even with the interim uh, appointment of the chair from the civil service, that civil servant will have to go back and work in the Department of Housing, possibly for the same minister. So it's a power grab. It is undermining the independence and it's undermining the independence of a body that's already damaged the in the public confidence. The suggestion that the, the minister or that civil servants are acting in anything but the public's interest is really spurious, okay? And to, and to talk about a narrative of 50, 60, 100 years ago, it's absolutely irrelevant. If the minister didn't act, if the minister didn't appoint a chairperson, and if Ambor Planola wasn't up and operating, the minister would be accused of negligence. Okay. Absolute dereliction I, I of duty. To, I want but, to get Roisin Murphy in here. Roisin, um, you've been listening um, um, to this discussion around... Um, on board Planola and the changes that are being proposed there. What's your view on what, what the minister wants to do here? Um, I think that when you, when you read the legislation in full, he's ambitious, he's making some good decisions, but this appointment very quick, sweeping in of uh, legislation to allow him to uh, place people onto the, the new the commission as it's now going to be called in Irish, is I would I would reinforce the opinion that it's a power sweep. But I also, and it's just something that's really annoying to watch this because at, at a certain point, some of us had a lot of optimism when he came in and he said, it's on board plan all, it's not fit for 
purpose. It was, you know, we thought we were going to get proper change because the people are not the problem. I mean, anybody who unpicks this knows that individuals and residence committees objecting to housing is not the problem and not the cause of the delay in the delivery of housing. And it's extremely frustrating. If you if you even read the, any of the articles on it over the weekend, it is basically because uh, there even there's such a huge delay between the, uh, developments getting permission and them starting. Many of them aren't starting. There's a, a financialization of the building of housing in Ireland that is causing people to uh, build very. Uh, kind of profitable schemes. We're seeing a massive increase in bill to rent, which we're trying to control. We're seeing a massive increase in very small apartments, a huge increase in those and uh, a huge increase in one bed apartments. And that's to an extent the people are responding to. There's this sort of attitude in government and in some um cohorts of society in Ireland that the people are objecting because somehow they think it's going to, you know, affect their back gardens or something that we're all sort of like children around housing. People are really not happy about some of the developments that are taking place. They're looking for sustainable, environmentally appropriate places when they want to downsize. They don't want to downsize into a one bedroom apartment. They're looking for two bedrooms apartments so they can have a carer in. They have legitimate interests in some of the uh, planning developments that are happening. Some of them are absolutely absolutely inappropriate because of the speed of the legislation and the strategic housing development that happened. A lot of the housing is not suitable for the areas. And we are doing this thing in Ireland where, okay, we need to fix the planning. There's a lot of things that need to change. But fundamentally, some of the stuff that is coming back to the people, to the communities, isn't that good? Okay. And they are Tom, responding. I, I want to get Tom, because you would, you would obviously represent people, who investors who want to build here and want to build maybe large scale projects. And then there would be those objections. Um, is it true that, you know, it's very easy to blame kind of judicial reviews and the legal process and holding up the show here, but that there are other factors at play? Well, the first thing I fundamentally disagree with what Roisin said, because SHD was brought in because of the inevitability of an appeal. So 7% of all schemes annually go to the board and 93% don't. But the board did a review in 2016 that showed that between 2006 and 2016, that 95% of all schemes of 100 or more residential units were appealed. So it was inevitable they're going to be appealed. So the introduction of SHD in 2016 didn't change that. So it was an automatic a reaction to the fact that people were going to object to housing schemes, and they do, and residential schemes, etc. We were told in 2016 by the uh, plan that came out then that the, the, it actually said the verb was to encourage built to rent, and now they're trying to get rid of built to rent. So built to rent, we have the lowest level of delivery of built to rent schemes, which are purpose built units to be, to be rented I, in I, Europe. I sense what you're saying is that all this uncertainty, if you like, about what you can build, what you can't build, and what may be coming down the line in the way of planning reform is actually stalling a lot of projects. Is, 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 that, is that what's happening? That people are uneasy yes. about, about getting into the market? Is, it is. is that what you, you're saying? Yes, because if you think of it like the IDA, for example, foreign direct investment to the IDA is, is, has a red carpet treatment. But foreign direct investment into putting in houses in Ireland, and these are homes for people, 
that it's the unhoused. We're trying to build them, that, that they're accused of being vulture funds. Well, and what if there are funds. legitimate concerns about the scale of well, people, developments, about object, the services, about nobody, the location of say that What nobody, about that? Nobody is precluded in, under SHD legislation or currently from objecting. People, for €20, Euro, you can object to a scheme, whether you're an individual or a consortium or residence group or whatever. So people can still do that and still hold up schemes. But it's wrong to say that these are, are shoeboxes. We've got our built rent, our smallest apartments are larger than most European countries. So it's, it's not true. And can I just say, yeah, sorry, SHD, we, we did away with the SHD process and we have restored the oh, local right. democracy, the local input in terms of planning decisions. We've introduced the large-scale residential development planning process, which actually brings the decision-making back to the local authority. And that, that, that did you want to address that I about, I suppose, the SHD and initially while it was started out as something that would fast-track planning, but actually it's resulted in this huge black backlog, an awful lot of delays and, and no one essentially being happy. Absolutely. And, and it was because was flawed legislation and uh, and that led to flawed decisions which then were challenged in the courts on the basis of lawfulness it's not about objecting it is about the lawfulness of decisions and what we're going to find here with these proposals around curtailing access to justice is that's going to add another level of argument and issue into court challenges because the, those issues around restricting access to justice will also have to be argued and that will add what we call satellite litigation which adds to the cost the complexity and the delays so what we really need is a good access to justice a compliance system around access to justice so where there is a challenge people can proceed in an orderly fashion mm. focus on the core issues and get in and out of court quickly mm. but instead of this this is a highly dysfunctional approach even just the notion of of restricting associations is going to be but immediately there is no contented there is that, no i'm sorry mary it's here in black and it's white, also, uh, in black and, 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 white. And this is also a really issue because i was on the planning advisory forum which was supposed to be the stakeholder group that you know was supposed to help inform some of these these conditions none of this was put in front of us Absolutely none of this was put in front of us. And that is a really serious issue because what we're talking about here is not just restrictions on associations, right. but also profound changes to the cost rules that are going to make it really intimidating and terrifying for people you, you to actually take... You believe it's going to have a chilling effect. Yes, okay, really we want to bring in the result effect. of our nightly megaphone poll tonight. We asked, should it be made harder to object to planning applications? 53% saying yes and 47% saying no. It's fairly split down the middle. Um, there, Killian. Uh, look, people are very divided, and it certainly raises the temperature of the issue around planning, planning decisions and the rights of people to object to, to planning in the middle of a housing crisis, because that's at the backdrop of all of this. Yeah. I mean, the big question is, will planning reform mean homes are built quicker? Tom nailed it on the head there. There was, no, there was a system where local authorities dealt with planning, the planning application for housing. They took that away, they put it straight to Mborps Nala, and that caused judicial reviews. The previous system had a local authority deciding housing, then it went to Mborps Nala, and the judicial reviews just barely existed. They just weren't, weren't, weren't a case. And now we've got a case for Mborps Nala, it wasn't Mborps Nala SHG, and they caused judicial reviews. It's now been rolled back to the local authorities with the, with the LRD, LRD. LRD. Now, that should, probably make a lot of judicial review, review in, in terms of housing, not infrastructure and energy, moot. So the fact we're discussing it here now is avoiding the big issues down the road, which the ESRI were writing about this last week. The main issues down the road are about the environmental costs of building housing and that we're going to have to, likely, based on the ceilings for carbon, reduce the amount we're building to about 20,000 a year. That's what we really should be talking about. OK, and maybe that's where uh, the Greens' objection maybe come, come into play there. Um, Roisin, I guess people want to know that well, like, what is 
the solution here? Like, what do you do? I mean, I, I, a lot of this is mind boggling. I mean, even to break through strategic housing development rules, how, the fact that that was fast tracked, the fact that that's not functioning now and um, legis poor yeah. legislation, rush, rush, rush legislation in the past and whether this is the, sol the solution to anything. Um, yeah, what what is, is the solution, do you think? I think the solution is, again, like there has been, there's definitely been a reduction in apartment sizes. They did that in order to, to, to introduce a new housing type, which everybody went bananas but there has been changes but we have got to look at it a holistic way there is a huge battle between community and developer at the moment okay and being you know apolitical on all of this that is one of the biggest problems we're seeing in the delivery of housing there's problems with Airbnb there's problems with rent there's problems with affordability and there's problems with dereliction and the use of derelict properties but also also I would I mean and this is a very contentious and I'm when you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Just thrown it in there to a certain extent, this thing of, and the way we talk about objections and how we talk about people as, as if they really are like children in terms of the planning process. And they're not because we have a very democratic system. It does need overhauling, but people have access to, they know about wind tunnels. They know about these things in, in Ireland because we're very vested in building, but that we need to come back at the community with maybe, you know, when we're arguing about height in communities that we come back to the people and say, OK, what what height can they tolerate? If they can't tolerate 14 stories, will they tolerate eight stories? Like, I think there is a kind of a shoving it down in people's throats. This is how we're going to deliver it. The problem is all of you people not accepting these fantastic schemes and which in many cases they just aren't fantastic. And it's not true to say that we don't have a whole load of built rent. There's a whole scheme that's just opened up in Griffith Avenue where every single unit in it 
is built to rent. Nobody in the community can buy a unit on Griffith Avenue in the new development. And that's very difficult for a community to understand because they're not going to be able to invest in their own community. So we have to be broader and we have to be, um, and I think that has to come from government. I think it's not good enough to say, um, we, you know, this is what we need to do, strategic housing, and uh, no limit on height, no limit like, you know, build it and they will come that's not happening and the buildings aren't getting turned around. We're seeing people, it's requiring a very complex changes in fire regulations in order to build these new buildings. So we need to, and, they're, and they also, sorry just to say this, this thing, they do need to bring on board on Tashka. They need to bring them on board. They're seen as these outliers who object to everything. So what we're having is this disentanglement of, of NGOs. They need to be brought together and they need to be consulted and put around the table so we can get housing delivered and, and towns reinvested in as well. And also, one last thing, we also need to, we don't have enough conservation officers and we don't have enough money in the planning departments. They don't have enough people and they don't build anymore. So if we did it in the 70s, why can't we do it now? Yeah. Well, Th that, appears I mean, that is what Housing for All is doing. We are committing to a state-led approach Just to housing. Just a key thing around consultation because yeah. there is a sense that if there's yeah. consultation from the get-go, mm. you won't get to the point that you've Absolutely. got these legal actions Absolutely. by Absolutely. residents associations going to judicial reviews and this stalling yep. on, on, on projects that are maybe required if you had that conversation mm. from the start. Absolutely. And that's why we need citizens to be involved in the planning process right from the very start. Well, how are you going to do that? Is that uh, contained that, 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 no, 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 Sorry, no, that is absolutely. an oversimplification. If you can, I didn't interrupt. Yeah. Now, attractive, please let me make Sorry. my point. Uh, we, that is exactly what we're doing. The national planning framework, the county development plans, the city development plans, so that citizens are involved. And actually, no, 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 hold on a second. That is, that is absolutely untrue. Page. It's disingenuous. The joint Oroctus committee, Lynn, don't not, interrupt me, please. I, I didn't interrupt you. The joint Oroctus committee. No, no, but the joint Oroctus committee will do the pre-legislative scrutiny. Lynn, briefly on that. I'm on the Oroctus Again, is that the, the minister doesn't even want to bring the policy changes through the Oireachtas and that have the proper true. oversight. That is just that completely is one of the proposals untrue. that's in that 600 it's page in, document. It is on the work plan for okay. the joint Oroctus committee on housing planning and local government. Just on that issue of consultation that, that would happen that may prevent a lot of these court cases that, that cause lengthy delays to house building projects and Public participation projects. is obviously a key part and it can lead to really significant improvements and detection of issues. But will it stop judicial reviews? No, because the judicial okay. review is on the decision itself. And if the decision is not lawful, by virtue of some flaw within the decision-making process, which is separate to the public participation, you still need to have access to justice. So we need to make sure that we have good access to justice to hold public authorities to account, to, in, to okay. incentivise them to make good and lawful decisions. All it's right. a fundamental part of the okay, rule we'll of it. law. There will leave yeah. it. Um, but there will be a lot more uh, discussion on this particular matter. Um, I'm sure of that. My thanks to Killian, to Attracta, Tom and Roisin. And coming up after the break, Ireland's demand on our energy supply hits an all-time high as the country braces itself against the cold snap while the cost of heating your home is unlikely to go down for a long time to come. Stay with us. Welcome back. The country braces itself for extreme cold, with some counties ex 
expected to reach lows of minus 11 degrees Celsius. Well, for more on this, I'm joined by Met Air and meteorologist Paul Downs. Uh, Paul, you're welcome to the programme tonight. If people thought the worst was over, it's clearly not. No, we're expecting a very cold night tonight, probably the coldest night uh, of the year so far. We're looking at lows getting down to minus five over a wide area away from the coasts, uh, reaching minus eight or minus nine through the Midlands there and possibly lower locally. And so with this, I mean, what happens when temperatures fall that low, apart from, say, the roads being perilous? Are there other things that people should really look out for when you're getting these sort of near record low temperatures? Yeah, you're, you know, you're definitely getting into a region there where if you don't have antifreeze in your car or your machinery, that could cause some damage there. Also for, for farms and animals, uh, make sure that all, all the ice is broken for them to, to be able to, to access some drinking water. Um, you know, and even it, it's, it's putting pipes at risk, uh, pipes that are above ground uh, that are outside and exposed may actually um, uh, suffer some, some cracks. So how long should we expect this cold weather? If you're saying it's going to reach its, its lowest point potentially tonight, um, for how long more can we, can we expect this? We're looking into, I suppose, Christmas, the end of next week. Um, will it go, go potentially up to that point? Well, it looks like tomorrow's going to be very cold day and tomorrow night quite similarly as cold, maybe a degree less than, than, um, than tonight. But looking towards the weekend then, uh, on, on Saturday we'll start to see a little bit milder air coming into the south. And on Saturday night and into Sunday we're looking at rain, possibly preceded by a bit of sleet, pushing them across the country and that'll introduce much milder air mass. We're looking at, at highs there of about 10 to 12 degrees on uh, Sunday, so quite a contrast. And Sunday night will be a very mild night in comparison. Now from Monday onwards it does look like gradually getting colder again next week. However, a bit far away for a Christmas forecast just yet. OK, there we'll leave it. Paul, thank you for that update. Thank you for bringing us that update tonight, Paul Downs from Met Aaron. Well, unseasonably warm weather in both October and November has helped stave off the need for many households and businesses to turn up the thermostat. But as the cold snap now sets in, demand on our energy supply will only increase. This combined with several days of low wind to drive the turbines has resulted in the power grid's first big test this winter. To discuss this, I'm joined by CEO of Bonkers.ie, uh, David Kenny, uh, Lynn Boylan and Mary Fitzpatrick are still with me. And joining us via Skype is researcher and policy, policy analyst Sive O'Neill, you're very welcome along uh, to the programme. Dave Kerr, I beg your pardon, Dave. Um, to come to you first on this, look, we did think, and there was all that messaging around turning down the heat and doing um, what you can to conserve energy in your home. That's very difficult now for people at this point, and we are expected to see it reflected in the bills. Yeah, it's, it's cold now, so people are going to start to burn their gas boilers from very early in the afternoon uh, to heat their homes for the evening. The oven is going to be on at about 5 or 6 p.m. That's going to go most of the night. The lights are on earlier, of course. We're going to see that in the morning time as well with the heating on. We're going to see that with the lights on. So our consumption as a nation and our pressure on the grid has increased and has become very much more amplified uh, over the last number of weeks. We had a very unseasonably warm and mild October, as it said in the, in the beginning of that report. And uh, unfortunately, those days are gone now. 
And we are likely, as I say, to see it reflected in the bills. And interesting yeah. what, what Eamon Ryan had to say, warning that gas prices may not drop yeah, yeah. Um, for up to two years. Yeah, yeah. So the, the, the energy crisis has been exacerbated by the, the war, obviously, in Ukraine. Um, what we've seen is that in the last 12 months, energy bills on average have doubled for both gas and for electricity, which is why we, of course, saw the 600 euro supports being brought in. Don't underestimate the impact that that 600 euro will have had on every mm. single household this winter and into uh, early next year. So we've seen 200 being delivered already. We have another 400 to come in the early new year. That's making a, a really significant impact, but it's only dissipating about 40% of the increase in the electricity costs alone and nothing at all on gas. Yeah, and one of the points that was being made, uh, Mary, in this um, energy poverty action plan, which was launched by Minister Eamon Ryan yesterday, um, this is about a hardship fund being there to mm -hmm. help people who are really at risk of, of mm -hmm. being, you know, cut off and really need help with their bills. But, you know, there is criticism that the companies in question, they, it's a bit ad hoc. It's not done uh, in a very clear way. It's done mm. on a case-by-case -case basis. And it's not necessarily that you can call up and say, look, I'm really having trouble with my bill and that they're going mm. to really do something about it. Yeah, look, I know from talking to constituents, it, it, huge worries. And, you know, as you say, everybody's turning on the heat and the lights and, and all of that because of the time of year. And Ukraine and the war in Ukraine has absolutely made matters worse. I suppose the budget, the 11 billion euros, you know, 4 billion this year and, and, and the remainder in next year and the 200 euro payments that were already the double social welfare payments, the double um, fuel allowance payments, you know, targeted and universal payments. And because, there may be a need for more. I, 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 we hope not, but you can't rule it out. You're absolutely right, Claire. Mm. We can't rule it out. Yeah. Okay, I want to bring Saif O'Neill here in at this point because while we're talking about, I guess, the costs for consumers and that we're having to turn up the heating now, um, there's also that pressure that's going on the grid. There was an All-Ireland record set this week. Um, we've had cold weather before, so why is it so different this year in terms of the pressure on our grid, Saif? Yes, certainly it's been an extraordinary year and it's worth highlighting that in fact November broke the record as well for the most wind energy that was generated uh, for the grid. So we've broken a number of records but the main problem is that we're seeing an increase in electricity demand and SEAI, the Sustainable Energy Authority of Ireland, today launched their Energy in Ireland report which is all the data from last year and they are expecting a big increase in um, electricity demand from 2021 and as a result of that, we're going to see an increase in greenhouse gas emissions. But because we're now operating under a system of carbon budgets, that really is putting constraints on the system. We need to ramp up our renewable um, even faster than we have been. We have made a lot of progress, but there's a need for even more acceleration and um, you know, delivery of the planned um, onshore, offshore wind and also solar onto the, onto the system with all of the grid improvements that that entails. But in addition to that, we need to address the drivers of that electricity demand. And quite frankly, it's mostly coming from data centres. Um, there are already 75 data centres on the system and there's 11 more under construction and plans for 60 further data centres up to 2030. Now, these data centres are coming with their, sometimes with permission to develop their own onshore thermal uh, power sources, uh, but they do have an increase uh, in electricity demand on the grid. And at the moment, the data centres 
customers that we have are demanding 13% of all the electricity we're generating, and that's increasing. So we really have an issue there with the increased pressure on the system from um, the uh, decarbonisation of other sectors uh, as we move towards electrifying transport and heating, and in addition to that, the uh, increased pressure coming from data centres particularly. And until we get a clear government decision to put a moratorium on those further uh, data centres, the pressure is only going to increase. All right. Um, yeah, the data centres, it's, it's coming back to that again, isn't it? When we're talking about pressure on the grid, when we have these centres that are, you know, eating up and using so much um, of our energy. Um, do, do you believe there's this political appetite to do anything around data centres? And to, Because we, we do hear about it time and time mm. again, Lynn. I, I'm just bewildered as to why there hasn't been a moratorium put on data centres because we need to, to get our house in order. It was an unmitigated disaster the way it was rolled out uh, and that's solely the blame of Fianna Gael and that's why I can't understand why Fianna Fáil and the Greens are rolling in and nearly owning it collectively now. Uh, we didn't plan properly for the data centres. We literally just invited them in, rolled out the red carpet, no planning for the grid. We didn't insist that they went where there was grid capacity. We didn't insist that they, they were uh, linked to their own renewable energy sources. We didn't insist that district heating would be part of it. So we now need to just play, press pause. We, we all accept data centres are, mm. are important. Not all of them. They're not all, not all equal in what they're doing. Um, but we have to press pause because otherwise trying to reach our climate targets, trying to build out our renewable energy, we're effectively trying to go up an escalator that's going yeah, down. We can't do it all, can we, Mary? It's a significant challenge, there's no doubt about so, it. I mean, to try look, and... What about that proposal that has come from you know, many quarters about the fact that data centres are there, but we're being told to do all these little things and, you know, again, industry you know, being under pressure, I suppose, to, to, to reduce their energy use at these key times for fear of blackouts. Mm -hmm. And we have the data centres that are operating and, and doing what, what they want to do without uh, a moratorium in place at this point. Yeah, we shouldn't be pitching it. It shouldn't be decarbonisation or digitisation. It shouldn't be one against the other. We have know, but to how actually... Do you do, how, well, well, what do you do what when do you have do? this pressure well, on the Well, grid? we do like what, what I've spoke of there. We increase... Moratorium. Well, no, we increase... But she did mention a moratorium. She did, okay, yeah. she did mention it, she did. but that wasn't the only the thing she one. mentioned. No, she did also mention massively increasing our renewables. Mm -hmm. We spent the first part of this programme, Claire, talking about planning, uh, planning and planning for renewables. One the, of the big the delays in the, in the road out an acceleration of renewables is our planning process. We need to accelerate the planning permissions for renewables. We're a leader in onshore wind. We have to, we have to okay. realise yeah, the potential in offshore. I want to ask you that about yeah. that. Uh, we're, we're, we're hearing that Britain is experiencing a wind drought. I don't know, are we that far behind? We had record wind, I think, in November. Yeah. But it's, it fluctuates, doesn't it? it it's it does, not, yeah. It's yeah. not overly reliable. It, it, it's quite reliable. And it's growing in terms but of what the capacity. But what now when you have but increased supply, yeah. a supply the, the at, a, issue, at a high the issue is that and we low need, wind? We need to have individuals capable to microgenerate and store on a domestic mm. level. So more solar panels and roofs, that's, that's one thing for certain. More batteries is one thing for certain. But let's not forget the smart meter program that's being rolled out by ESP Networks as well on a domestic basis. We're halfway there. We're over a million metres installed. 2.4 million in total will be installed by the end of 2024, but only 4% of people understand and have opted into a smart tariff. And that's a major issue in terms of the domestic uptake 
and how people can change their behaviour to reduce their bills and also reduce the strain on the network at key times. Okay, so that's a, a campaign that you say needs to be sort of fought. I mean, the, the, the work is being done on it, but it's we don't understand the benefits um, as, as of yet. Um, okay, there we'll have to leave it. My thanks to David, to Lynn, uh, to Mary and to Sive. The King of Crypto is uh, arrested and charged. But who is the man that went from amassing a wealth of over 10 billion to being charged with fraud? Do stay with us. Once amassed a wealth of over $10 billion, the so-called crypto king Sam Bankman-Fried was arrested in the Bahamas facing eight counts including fraud and money laundering. Joining me now for more on this fascinating story and the role of cryptocurrency is Business Post journalist Emmett Ryan. Emmett, you're welcome along to the programme. Tell us about Sam Bankman-Fried um, and how, I suppose, he rose to, to where he got to in amassing so much wealth at such a young, young age and now to face, you know, years, potentially decades in, in, a, in a U.S. prison. Yeah, and like you were talking about a guy who made an extraordinary amount of money in very short time. At his peak, I think his wealth was considered $26 billion, which is unimaginable wealth from a company he only started in 2019 as well called FTX. So Bankman Freed, uh, or SBF as he likes to be known because it was sort of his attempt to be cool, as a lot of these tech bros are, he was a, about as privileged an upbringing as you can get. He was literally born on the campus of Stanford University in the US, went to MIT, so had the classic sort of, you know, this is what an entrepreneur is meant to look like or sound like, come, come from background. And he got involved in the crypto side reasonably early days, with it, like around 2013 is when he first started getting actively involved. And he's only 30 now, so he was still a very young man then at the time, obviously. And when he set up FTX, he managed to get some very high-profile investors on board very quickly. Like we're talking like names like, you know, Tom Brady and Giselle Bunchkin. He uh, had like Scaramucci, of course, was famous. He was working with Trump at one point. I think the Clintons and Blair also had some investment in there. But he had a lot of high-profile people backing them. He was the second highest or highest donor to the Biden campaign in the last election. Like, so he has quite had, had really, really shown up as sort of being this like face out there who had gotten a lot of people to back him and invest in this cryptocurrency company. But it turns and that out the house of cards has come tumbling down. And then some, uh, because it, so he essentially had two companies, which in normal business environments, you wouldn't have been allowed to have these two particular companies. The one that's best known as FTX, which was basically a trading hub for cryptocurrencies. It was like sort of tra trading foreign exchange, mm. only in this case it was cryptocurrencies. His other was called Alameda, which was a trader, which mostly traded on that exchange and had a special preference with the, uh, with FTX, which in normal trading is extremely illegal, uh, putting it mildly in any uh, Western democracy. But he was doing this very normally. Turned out that uh, the main currency they were selling, which was something called FTT, it was sort of the home currency of FTX, uh, there was a bit of concerns in the value in this. And yes, I know, folks, this is very confusing. I'm trying to keep this as basic as yeah. I can. There was, a, uh, there was no real value in it. And so they started trying to shift assets out of there. So essentially, they were sort of trying to pay off two credit cards with each other repeatedly in one cycle is the easiest way to describe it. And when everything started falling apart, he went looking for help from people. They said no. And then all of a sudden, the entire crypto market is starting to go through chaos. Like all the other exchanges that are out there that are big names have gone through major issues. Crypto.com, which I'm sure a lot of you have seen a lot of annoying ads for with Matt David online, 
they've, they've had some major hits from it. And Binance, which would probably be the best known of them, had a big run today of about a billion being withdrawn at once from the yes. exchange. So I guess where does it leave the future of this currency and the credibility around it? Because a lot of people are confused as to what it actually is, how it works and how it relates to real money. Uh, well, with good cause, to be honest about it, that they're confused. Because if you think about real money, like the reason we support it, it's, not, it's, it's because you and I have always known a euro is worth X amount, but it's not just because we are assigned the value ourselves, because we know there's the whole European institutions are behind this. There's a, something real backing it, even though essentially it's a trust thing when we back a currency. Same thing with the dollar, you know, there's the whole US industrial and military might behind that. With, you know, something like FTT, which is a, a Bankman Freed's currency, or even Bitcoin, it's essentially a bunch of guys told you it's okay, uh, is essentially the trust behind it, which isn't quite the same level of apparatus of trust that you can have. And so, but there was a, sort of this very high profile thing about it when it all started out about 10 years ago, the crypto real movement, when it started to gain some steam because it was independent of states. It was something that could be created by value. And of course, lots and lots of people in the tech sector thought it was quite innovative and that immediately got attraction. And so it looked like, quite frankly, an easy way to also hide money because uh, it was very popular with some people in criminal uh, as yeah. aspects as so well. I suppose the question is, is this an expensive fad? Is what we're seeing Definitely, now? I would say. Uh, like the, I've seen several high-profile bankers over the years have very openly said, I think it was the Estonian Central Bank even said, it's the definition of a Ponzi scheme, uh, you know, cryptocurrencies are. Uh, and I may be wrong on which particular central bank it is, but one of the, one of the Baltic ones did. And we've seen plenty of people in real institutions question this, and quite often we're seeing it's not traditional investors. There are some major investment banks going into it. They're making sure their limit, exposure is limited. Now, there are some exceptions, like the Ontario Pensions Board, which is obviously covering the pensions of all the teachers in a large part of Canada, mm. seem to be badly hit, badly hit by this. But broadly speaking, it's like people who don't do investing for a living are the ones who are going hardcore into this. What about Irish interest? And this, well, yeah, it's been growing obviously over an hour and for a while, like, you know, and one of the theories of the creator of Bitcoin is they might actually be an Irish programmer, but it's not entirely sure that it's actually that person. In fact, it's probably not them. It's been growing in Ireland. There's always been a lot of interest here, but, and we've seen like, you know, people trying to sort of, you know, develop businesses out of it over here, but essentially we're largely a small market. So it's really just private investments by Irish backers. We haven't really seen much Irish interest in the FTX side yet is a key point because these things quite often take weeks to pull out. Like it began four weeks ago at FTX. It was only charged this week. So we could yet see far more and people who are high profile here be involved. Okay, um, and Sam Bankman-Fried has been denied bail and we will watch uh, that space. But thanks to Emmett. That is it from us. Our programme is available as a podcast on all major platforms. You can also now find us on Instagram and on TikTok, tonight VMTV. But from all the late team here, good night and take care.